this psalm today exactly where the psalmist began, which is with the most handsome groom. And in fact, that's actually not a fully accurate statement, of course, because as he writes, the most handsome of the sons of men. The most handsome. When, when Lauren says to me, you're the most handsome, I say, honey, I, I appreciate that. I know I'm not the most handsome of the sons of men, but I appreciate you, uh, you thinking that that's the case. But nevertheless, this is lofty language here in describing the king. And it's characteristic of the psalm as you go through this to see all of the language that is used in this way. But it is, in fact, not simply flattery. And it's not vain flattery that is being used by the psalmist. It is allowing a wedding to do exactly what weddings do. They magnify, they intensify all that is best in word and in ceremony, in dress. Weddings cut through the ordinary to take us to a world, to an, a world of ideals and images and allow us for a moment, even if for just a moment or just an hour or just a few minutes, to put aside the mundane, to put aside the regular, to put aside all of the troubles that exist in our life and all of the troubles that will inevitably exist in every marriage. And it lays those aside so that it only, if only for a brief time, we can rest together in the poetry of the word, in the splendor of the dress, in the dignity of the ceremony that is set before us. But this groom, even in his ordinary life, even in his everyday life, this groom, described here in Psalm 45, is no ordinary man. He is the king. Now, which king he is is difficult to say. We don't have a specific description. Could be Solomon. That probably makes the most sense. But in any case, without a name, it makes the psalm more easily generalized to a variety of kings, useful for a number of royal weddings. And what an extraordinary description of this king that we have. He is handsome. He's gracious in his speech. He's, you know, he's, he's not just good looking, but he can speak well also. That reminds me, uh, never mind, that reminds me of a movie. What's that movie? Roxanne with, uh, with Steve Martin. You got a guy who's really good looking, but he can't speak at all. Well, this king is handsome and gracious in speech. He's blessed of God. He is armed with a sword and with a bow, and with that sword and with that bow, he is able to defend his bride, he's able to defend his family, he's able to defend his kingdom against any enemies. He's able to protect. And all of that he does in splendor and majesty as it keeps getting repeated in the psalm. He rides out, verse 4, he rides out for the cause of truth and righteousness. And, and when he rides forth for truth and righteousness, you can imagine that and you can say, yes, that's great, and it's wonderful. And then we get inserted right between truth and righteousness, that marvelous word, meekness. He rides out for truth and meekness and righteousness. In his power, 
in all of his glory, he doesn't overrun the weak. He doesn't ignore them. Rather, he uses his power, he uses his glory to look after those who are weak, to look after those who are meek. And so while he is glorious, he's not pompous. But he's rather one who defends those who have little. It's intensified language, to be sure, all throughout this description in verses 2 through 5. But what happens when we get to verse 6? When we get to verse 6, we read this, and you look at it, and you read it, and you go, how can you say this about a man? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This isn't a shift to a reflection on God the Father. This is directed still to the king. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the answer to understanding that is to understand the nature of Israel's kingship. Israel was king, Israel had a king, and that king was under a king. And so the design of Israel's king was to get you to look to another king. He was a symbol of God as king. And so what we have here in this particular portion of the psalm is not merely an intensification or a magnification of the role. It is a prophetic intensification. It is the psalmist saying, we're going to have to look beyond this king, this groom, this wedding, and you've got to see towards another throne, towards another king. And he invites us to reflect on the messianic expectation of a coming king, a coming anointed one who would rule over the people and who would be their husband. Derek Kidner is a writer, he's a theologian, he's done a number of commentaries and has done one on the Psalms, and whenever I can find something written by Kidner, I always lay hold of it because it's always good stuff and good reflections that he's got there. And he writes wonderfully of this verse, your throne, O God, for, is forever and ever. Here we have an example of Old Testament language bursting its banks to demand more than human fulfillment. Now, I love that image. Pot on the stove, potato stuff boiling over. Here, language bursting its banks. It just won't hold. It, 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 the, the river will exceed the banks. Why? Because it's so rich. Because the true king is so great. And so he's, he's forcing us. And you remember when we did this with, uh, with Moses just a few weeks ago? We were talking about Moses on the hill interceding for the people, right? And, and we were noting that on that mountain, you've got you've to look up to other mountains that are in the background. You've got to look up to Calvary. You've got to then look up to the heavenly Mount Jerusalem. And the same kind of thing is going on here. While you're looking at this wedding, there's another peak. There's another peak behind this wedding. There's another wedding to come, another groom to come, another bride to come. And so the psalmist, as he writes, is not merely intensifying the language. He's kind of saying, get your gaze right. Let it carry you to where it's supposed to carry you. And so Hebrews 1 confirms this for us by quoting exactly these verses. And it says this, but of the Son, that is not of any other creation, of the Son, 
He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And herein, the superlative language describing this earthly king, which seems to us to be a, a, a bit excessive, and appropriately so, as it considers ideals, here that language, the superlatives find their resting place, their fulfillment, their reality, the place where they are anchored completely. But if you know, when you go along here, your throne of God is forever and ever, it switches down in verse 7. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Well, he was just said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. And the language kind of flops back and forth on itself. And the only way to make sense of this without doing gymnastics of, of textual work to try and understand it is to look at this as a reflection on the Trinity. It, when you understand it within context of the Trinity, it becomes very clear. God the Father is anointing the groom, God the Son, through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's what's taking place, and that's what's being described here. Now, who, who in their right mind would not want to be engaged to that groom? Who wouldn't want to be married to this groom? Well, let's turn to this beautiful bride that we have described here for us. She is glorious. She's wonderful in, in person, in character, in dress, in the accompanying friends who come along with her in her bridal party. She is a princess. Now, all little girls want to be princesses, right? When, when Lauren and I look at our wedding album on each anniversary, I open it up and there's a picture of her right at the front. And I say, this is the story of a little girl who was a princess. And that's the way it starts. That's the, that's the reflection here that we have on this particular bride. She and her party are full of joy and gladness. And she has a calling that is given to her as she approaches the king. As she comes up to him, this calling is listed for us, uh, written for us in verse 10. Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Leave it behind. Now, perhaps, and perhaps most probably, this is a reflection on a queen, on a princess, who wasn't of the people of Israel, who was a foreigner being united to the king. But nevertheless, the call is so familiar to us. Those, those words are so familiar to us. If you're familiar with your Bibles, you'll recognize the similarity here to Ruth. You, you can't help but recognize that. Now, Ruth, I'm going to read this section for us right now. For those of you who don't know, Ruth is a story written of a, a Jewish family who at a time of, family, of famine goes into Moab, and two wives are secured for two Jewish sons of Moabites. They're, they're Moabitess women. Both of the husbands die, and the mother-in-law, Naomi, is trying to get her daughters-in-law, now widowed, to go back to their people because she's leaving and heading back to Israel. And this is what we read. And she, uh, that is Naomi, 
said to her sister, uh, said, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything. But death parts me from you. Ruth says, I'm going with you. And the psalmist says to the bride, as she comes forward, forget all the past. Leave all of that behind and cling now to your husband. And of course, this, this simply echoes words from Genesis and words that are repeated by the Lord that apply both to the husband and to the wife. But you've got to leave and cleave is the way it's put. Leave your families, leave that which has come before and cleave then to one another. And that's what is pictured for us here as well. If you want to think of this in terms of the New Testament, where's, which is where we're going to head with this, think of Paul. Paul says this, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I leave that past behind, whatever it was, whether it was glorious, whether it was hard, I leave that behind, and now I press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, we can understand that. We, we can understand leave and cleave. That can make some sense to us. But sure, to rankle our modern sensibilities is the call that is found at the end of verse 11. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Now, the preacher is tempted to say regarding this command to bow that she is commanded to bow because he is, in fact, a king. This is not a reference to her role as husband. It is a reference to his role as king. And therefore, you should bow to him because he is the king, but it just won't do. He is her king husband who he is. And if we look through Scripture and we see how Sarah is praised for calling Abraham her Lord, it will not allow us to ignore this call to bow before him. It will not allow us to reject it, to cry that that's oppression, that it's injustice, that it's Neanderthalic, that it's arcane obeisance. You have to look at what happens. Look, look at what happens. She is granted a position, verse 9. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. The one who is bowing becomes the one at the right hand who is full of the gold, dressed in the gold of Ophir. And as she bows, Verse 12, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. In other words, she bows, and in her bowing, she is immediately exalted and the one who is receiving gifts. Why? Because in her bowing, in her acknowledgement of him, 
she gains title to all that is his. All that belonged to him by royal right now belongs to her, though it wasn't hers by royal right. She is now part of his family and thus a recipient of all of the glory and the honor and the status and the privileges. And you see where this is going, right? You and I, we are the bride, and we bow to our husband, King Jesus. And what he says is, raise up, sit at my right hand, and receive everything. Receive it all. The bow, the bow, if it seems to you arcane, think it is the posture that we are called to take before our Lord Jesus Christ. Marriage is not first. The relationship that we have to Christ is first. Marriage is designed to show us what that relationship is like. If you find her bowing to be distasteful, how can you not find the bowing to Jesus Christ to be distasteful as well? How can you not find the fact that the Son of God obeys his Father? He does his obeisance to the Father, humbling himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of even death on a cross. And what happens to him? To that one is ascribed all glory. To him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, we take this obeisance, we take this bowing, and we find it to be a terrible thing. And God says it is the posture of dignity. It is a restoration of your place as a worshiping people before me. I skipped a verse. The most handsome husband, a beautiful bride, and finally a beautiful desire. Verse 11, and the king will desire your beauty. Our world is full of ugly desires. It is full of cheap thrills, of shallow desires that promise much and deliver little. If the Bible affirms and confirms anything, it confirms the comprehensive corruption of our desires. But never forget this. Desire is not the problem. Desires are not the problem. You will not have advanced in holiness when you say, I have no desires. Corruption is the problem, not desires. Growth in your Christian life is not the killing of desires. It is the redirecting of the desires to that which is true, good, lovely, pure, perfect. Don't kill the desires, kill the corruption, return the desires to their proper object, and then you'll understand what the paths were cut for.
the desire of the husband, of the groom for his wife is good. It's very good. Thus affirms the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine and his desire is for me. His desire is for me and then in another place. He is altogether desirable. You see the mutuality of the desire. It's not a one-way street in terms of the desire. There's a mutuality to it. He desires her. She desires him. And the fruit of that desire then is shown to us in the concluding verses. The progeny that comes forth calls your name to be remembered. I'll take your sons, put them on thrones. How amazing, brothers and sisters, that Christ takes pleasure in us, that Jesus desires us with that kind of desire. So I watched the royal wedding, and Kate arrives at Westminster, and Pippa comes out and straightens out her gown and holds her train as the young girls gather around her, and they go up to the front of Westminster Abbey. And of course, the, the crowds are cordoned off, but as she's making her way up there, they're all cheering for the arrival of Kate. And they go into the abbey, and the choir begins to sing, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house, to the courts of the Lord. And she walks down the aisle through the crowds, presented in all of her beauty to the future king who has come in and who is waiting at the front. And it's majestic. It really is. It's glorious. I don't know what else you can say. It's just, it's just beautiful. I mean, we may have eschewed the whole royalty thing for various reasons, but we all like to watch it. We all like to watch that part of it anyway, the splendor of it on display. And here's the thought that I had to myself, and I'm going to say it this way. I thought to myself, holy smokes, I get to be Kate. I get to be Kate. You get to be Kate. We get to be Kate. Now, I know you want to hear that in all the wrong ways and laugh at it and things like that, but I said it so that it is memorable. We get to be as prized, as cherished, as honored, as beautified as Kate is in the royal wedding. For we are the beloved of the greatest groom ever. Jesus Christ. He has the throne that endures forever and ever. All authority on heaven and in earth belongs to him. He's got a sword at his side. He fights for truth and meekness and righteousness. And he rides forth on our behalf. And we approach him as beautiful 
as lovely to him. His eye glimmers as he watches us coming down the aisle. And you think to yourself, well, how can that possibly be? How can it be that Jesus would see us with that kind of beauty? And the answer, and I won't turn us to it right now, you can look it up later in Ephesians chapter 5. The answer is this. He is preparing the bride for himself. Jesus is preparing us to be his bride. And the way that he is preparing us, I'm going to press an analogy here for a moment, okay? The way that he is preparing us is he has sent to us the greatest stylist ever who can make anybody look good. And the name of that stylist is the Holy Spirit. And that stylist doesn't just cover up things on the outside, put on a cake of makeup so that we look good. What that stylist is able to do is the Spirit of God is able to come into the heart and to transform that which is most ugly in us, that which is the seat of all of those corrupted desires. The Spirit of God is able to take that, work it, renew it, so that we are preparing ourselves in, in the Revelation passage, so that the Spirit of God, on behalf of Him who sent Him, Jesus Christ is preparing us so that on that day, you and I walk down the aisle in the beauty of holiness. You and I walk down the aisle without spot, no wrinkles, and no blemishes. It's good work. Started now, it'll be completed at the day of Christ Jesus. And he says to us, as we get to the front and we bow to him, you're mine and I am yours. You're mine and I am yours. Welcome to the glory, to the rest, to the home that I have been preparing for you, for us. Receive. Receive everything. It's all mine. You didn't have any royal dignity in and of yourself. You didn't have any royal blood coursing through you. You're married to the king. That makes you the queen. At the right hand of the king, dressed in the gold of Ophir. Whether you are single or married, child or adult, it makes no difference. Christ is our sealed engagement. The Spirit of God is our sealed engagement that we will be wedded to Jesus Christ through faith and belief in Him. Now, if you're here today, and you say, I, I don't know Jesus in that way. I'm not sure I believe in Jesus. Nearly, nearly the last words in your Bible are this. The Spirit and the Bride, the Bride now being us, the church, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Come. Join. 
If you are in Jesus Christ, I have one application for you today, just one. Join the psalmist. Let your heart be stirred by a goodly theme, the wedding feast of the Lamb of God. Now, I'm going to invite you to do something. In preparation for that day, you don't have to, but if you're able to and you would like to, you have kneelers in front of you. If you would like to kneel with me before the king, I'm going to kneel before you and we're going to pray together before our God and King. So if you'd like to, pull the kneelers down. If not, that's fine. Jesus, you are a great Savior. And God, our Father, you are great to have sent your Son. And Spirit of God, you are great to have called us and to be preparing us for the day. Lord God, be honored. You are our King, Jesus. Thank you for laying down your life. Thank you for pouring out your spirit. It is a good theme. Fill us, your people, with joy and gladness as we await the day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.